Hey guys, welcome to Turn Em Loose, a podcast about bird dogs and bird hunting. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind you to go ahead and like it and subscribe and share. Uh, if you subscribe, then you'll be able to get the new episodes as they come out and you won't have to go searching. Well, let's get right to it. Hey, my friends, if you listen to my podcast, you probably know that I have a sponsor, Electronic Shooters Protection, ESP. Their website is ESPAmerica.com, and they provide hearing attenuators, form fit, customized hearing attenuators for shooters. Uh, They do have volume controls on each one, so you can set them, and they block out everything above 90 decibels, which continued exposure above 90 decibels will continue to contribute to hearing loss which is what I have so I'm real excited to start shooting with these uh, in my ears and see how that works but right now I am tickled to death with them and uh, I hope you'll give them a look at ESPAmerica.com Hey guys, while I'm waiting to upload more episodes, I am going to do some shameless self-promotion for my book, Endless October, which is now on Amazon as a paperback. The Kindle edition, e-book edition for Kindle will be up shortly. It's a little bit different in that I am devoting an entire chapter at the end to photographs color photographs. So it's going to take a little bit longer and it'll be up shortly. But what I'm going to do is read one of the short stories out of the book, the one that I really want to read and I, it touches me the most is about my last hunt with my dog Ace. But, and I'm sure that you bird dog people will relate to this, I wrote it but I can't read it yet. It's only been about two years. I think maybe in another year or two I'll be able to read it out loud without blubbering like a baby. But anyway, I'll go ahead and read another story out of there and uh, give you just a little taste of what's in the book. Dances with Wolves Of the many species of grouse, the ruffed grouse is king. Ruffed grouse are, arguably, the most difficult game bird to even get into a position to shoot. Then, based on my amateur calculations, a hunter has one second, or less, after the flush to get a load of shot on the way. With their range throughout the country, the best hunting, to my mind, is in the North Woods, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. The populations are large, the terrain is flat, and the available hunting land is plentiful and managed for grouse. I've been a guest of the North Woods for close to 15 years now. Every October, definitely, and every September if I can. I load up the dogs for the annual trek to match wits with the finest game bird on the planet. 
A good experienced grouse dog is a rare thing indeed. When I first began hunting in north central Wisconsin, I had Rocket, a Brittany male, and Ruby, a setter female. Both were dead broke dogs and took to the thick cover and the trails of the Shaquamigan National Forest with ease. They always checked in, never disappeared, rarely flushed birds, and were a real pleasure to hunt behind. Over the years, those dogs passed on and my follow-on dogs were led by Julius Bocephus, or Bo. Bo was a southern quail dog, bred and trained to get on out there, locate coveys of quail and hold them until I got there to flush and shoot. That method of hunting is diametrically opposed to what a dog requires in Wisconsin. If a dog gets 100 yards from the hunter in Wisconsin grouse woods, considered way too close for a quail dog, he was lost and a little, little use to the grouse hunter. The cover was simply too thick and the birds too skittish and too quick to flush. Bo managed to do the job, but I was never at ease with him. Even though he wore a beeper collar, pre-GPS days, to help me keep track of him and alert me to when he was on point. I would dread watching him head down into an alder swamp and sure enough his beeper would go off and I'd bust through the brush and muck to try and get to him just in time to see the bird flush. Many was the time I would push my way through alders and briars and hemlock and fir trees for 50 to 60 yards and finally see Bo standing rock solid on point, only to hear the roar of the grouse wings just yards away and maybe get a glimpse of the gray ghost through the trees. I tried for years to get Bo back into a comfortable grouse range, but I had trouble with the idea of really bearing down on him. I know some dogs that will adjust automatically. I owned one, my setter, Ruby, and they are such a pleasure. But I have what I have, and Bo and I came to a mutual understanding. He would work as close as he could, but I'd have to accept a little more effort on my part in the woods. The limit to how many grouse can be harvested in one day is very liberal in Wisconsin. On a good year, a sojourn through the woods could get you numerous flushes in front, either side or sometimes behind you. I counted those flushes, but would not shoot. I made it a policy not to shoot at a bird unless it was over my pointed dog. I know, that's crazy, my friends tell me. Getting a daily limit of rough grouse was never the goal working my dogs to get that perfect series of point flush shot and retrieve was the goal. And when I got several of those events in one day, I was completely satisfied. However, Bo and I did happen to bump up against the limit one time, not many years ago when Bo had some age on him and his legs started getting a little heavier, he stayed a lot closer. We were hitting trails we'd never seen before and exploring a little. One trail I remember in particular, a little northeast of Phillip, Wisconsin. I discovered 
a little dashed line on the map and put out to take a look. Bo worked out about 30 yards on either side of the trail that morning. I remember watching him and recalling other times and other trails and CRP fields, daydreaming on the pleasant walk through the forest. Some days when the sun is beating down on a warm September afternoon, grouse hunting consists of a pleasant, thoughtful saunter in the forest, interrupted by a roaring freight train as the grouse flushes three feet from your ear. My thoughts were broken by his beeper off to the left. This time I could actually see him when I looked through the alders and the pines. He rarely falls pointed, so I got excited when I moved quickly off the trail to a spot ten yards in front of him. Two grouse blew out of the leafy green grass and headed to Mexico. My old fox 20 gauge hit my shoulder and I dropped the one to the left and Bo took off after it. Right at that instant, four more birds flushed up in a roar of wings to my right. I swung, saw the closest gray blur and let loose my second and last low to seven and a halfs. The bird flew behind a fir tree just as I shot, but I cocked an ear and was rewarded with a dull thud as I heard the dead bird hit the forest floor. Amazing. Six grouse on one point. Bo brought the first bird back and I sent him for the second one. He located it with no help from me and put it in my hand. What a great start to the day. We managed to bag another single a little further up the old railroad bed. Further on, I heard the noise from heavy machinery as we approached the old logging road where I was parked at the head. I discovered that my little two-track was being widened by the Forest Service. We popped out of the woods right in front of the biggest bulldozer I've ever seen. Bo and I were both impressed. The driver must have been impressed with us too because he cut the engine and climbed down to chat. There are wonderful, friendly people up there in Wisconsin, and a bulldozer operator was no exception. While we talked, I was in the middle of describing the six-bird find Bo had earlier when I noticed a curious look on his face as he glanced over my shoulder. You might want to take a look at your dog, he said, and pointed behind me. There was Bo standing on the dirt berm thrown into the woods by that monster machine. He was on point. I whispered, gotta go, and jogged up to Bo, over the berm and down the other side right into a flushing bird. Four birds in the bag on one trail. That's a good day. On the way back to the truck, perhaps a mile down the newly widened road, I found one more and we had our limit. I hunt alone a lot, but this is one time I really wanted to have a hunting partner so I could gloat a little bit. So in lieu of that, the old knucklehead and I sat in the ferns by the truck, had a little love fest. I told him how good he was, and he allowed as to how I was trainable. Last year I was introducing some friends to the Northwoods. I would point him to a trailhead for them to hunt in the morning, tell them where I was going to be, wish them luck, and agree to meet for lunch or failing that dinner back at the motel. As luck would have it, the warm fall day started turning dark a little early and it was almost black by noon. 
The rain started as a sprinkle and then gradually got worse. We put out on a trail that had produced a lot of birds over the years. I was the only one on it, and I was determined that a little rain wasn't going to interfere with a grouse hunt. I did swap my guns, though, and the little fox went back into the case, replaced by a 20-gauge SKB Model 100 I used for weather like this. Bo and I started down the trail with him running ahead. Then he would veer off to his side, and then he was gone. I walked and whistled, listened for his beeper for an hour. The rain was heavy at times, but merely a downpour at others. He could have been 20 yards out in a thick growth on point, and I would not have heard or seen him. Finally, I returned to the truck, dried off, cleaned, dried and oiled and cased the gun put on some dry clothes and headed out to find my dog. The trail was about three miles long, meaning six miles out and back. It was getting darker now and I was getting a little more concerned about the old boy. The good thing was the temperature was quite warm in the 60s. If he did have to spend the night in the woods, I was sure he would be able to find a dry spot and stay warm. Walking, whistling, listening, and bouncing between anger and concern as I walked down the trail. I rounded a bend as the trail dropped off sharply. I stood for a minute listening and staring down the trail. Suddenly a big gray shape stepped out on the trail about 30 yards away. He was looking down the trail away from me. After a second or two I recognized him as a gray wolf. Instantly, I realized he and I were looking for the same thing. I was looking for my old bird hunting companion. This big gray boy was looking for dinner, and it downright pissed me off. Hey, I yelled, get out of here, or words to that effect. I expected him to jump and run like the coyotes I'd encountered numerous times out west. His reaction was quite a bit different from what I anticipated. That huge, majestic canine slowly turned his head to the right and looked directly in the eye. Then he slowly turned back to the left and trotted down the center of the trail without so much as a backward glance. Even now I'm, I'm impressed with him. He was huge easily three times the size of my bird dogs, which would make him more than 120 pounds. As he trotted off in the direction of my lost dog, he more glided than ran. Just then I came to the realization that I was completely unarmed. It was one of those few times in my life when I really did want a gun in my hands, and it was resting dry and well-oiled in my truck more than a mile away. Not thinking all that clearly and remembering the literature I'd read about wolves not bothering humans. Yeah, except for the thousands of years of history and stories about wolves devouring little kids and old men, the big bad wolf, and on and on. So I pressed on down the trail, calling and keeping a careful eye behind me. 
An hour later, at the end of the trail, I turned and headed back to the truck. Concern now is for my ability to make it back before dark. I picked up the pace. Head down in the rain, moving quickly, I rounded a bend, and there he was. A 35-pound bundle of shaking, wet setter. I'm not sure who was happier to see the other, but I got down on my knees and hugged that mutt and thanked Jesus for once again answering my prayers. We didn't stay long on that trail in the rain, and I put him on a lead and headed out. He was so exhausted he tried to lie down a few times, and finally I had to pick him up and throw him over my shoulders. We needed to get out of the woods now. The sun was long gone behind thick clouds and darkness was settling in. The GPS said we had more than a mile of up and down to go. I remembered that song from the 60s, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, as I carried him up and down hills, slipping on the upslopes with rain dripping down my neck and wet dog scent in my nose. Song or not, don't believe it. He got heavy as this old man got close to the road. I put him down and we finished side by side, both of us limping and panting hard. Back at the motel, I checked the old campaigner over for cuts, bruises, and ticks. It was then I noticed blood on my hands when I ran them over his haunches. I turned him around and gave him a closer inspection. On his right rear leg, just below the tail, was a perfectly round hole. Bo wasn't talking, but to this day I think he encountered my big gray friend too. I think we were being watched during our little reunion on the trail in the rain in the Wisconsin Grouse Woods. friends that's the end of this episode don't forget to like share and subscribe and that way you'll be the one of the first ones to hear new episodes as they come out uh, don't forget also to visit my blog which is a birdhunterstoughts.com there's a link to the podcast in the upper right corner and you can listen to the latest one there as well go ahead and share the blog share the podcast and uh, be sure and stay tuned for new episodes. I also have a book coming out. It's called Endless October. The paperback will be out shortly, and there will also be a Kindle edition to follow shortly thereafter. Be sure and uh, try to be the man your bird dog thinks you are. And until next time, happy hunting. Okay, I'm on the phone with Bob St. Pierre of uh, Quail Forever, I'm sorry, Pheasant Forever, and uh, he is the Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Pheasants Forever, uh, located up in his office up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Are you there, Bob? I am, and, and you were right the first time. It's it's Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, so uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. No need to correct yourself. Uh, um, I can speak on behalf of both organizations because it's the same organization. That's great. And I notice you've got most of your members are present forever members. And then uh, then you've got some Quail Forever members. I guess most of them in the South, I would assume. Yeah, you know, uh, Pheasants Forever started in 1982 in Minnesota, and, and that side of the organization represents about 125,000 members. Um, wow. So, you know, we're, like I said, we're 37, 38 years old on the Pheasant side. Quail Forever is um, significantly younger, started in 2005. Um, and we've got about, uh, well, we're closing in on 20,000 members on, on the quail side. And if you think about the pheasant range, uh, you draw a line across, say, middle Missouri, middle Illinois, Nebraska, Kansas, um, all the way up to Calgary, Alberta. That's kind of the pheasant range. That same line, uh, you know, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, drop south and west, and uh, that's the quail range. Mm-hmm. You know, when when we started Quail Forever in 2005, our, our the first area of considerable growth for quail was kind of in that right on that line, the mixed bag states we referred to it as Nebraska, mm-hmm. Kansas. That's where Quail Forever took off. But then now that we're in our you know 14th year, Quail Forever, just like you you would assume, we're there's some membership explosions happening across the southeast, Texas, um, and in, into the west. Um, you know, that, that fringe states where the Pheasants Forever brand and our model and our organization was well-known is where quail kind of took off first just because it, it was a natural extension and people people knew yeah. what made it, made us unique. Uh-huh. All right. And uh, do you, I, I was just thinking while I was listening to you there, do you deal with any other uh, species other than Bob White? Do you, yeah. Are you concerned about the blue quail? or? Yeah, that, that's a great question. We actually do. We, we only have the two brands, so you can only join as a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever, but we're intimately involved um, with the sage grouse initiative in the West, um, we, we work really closely with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's um, Natural Resources Conservation Service, known as known as NRCS. Right. We're one of their primary partners on um, creating or protecting sage grouse habitat for sage grouse. Uh, we do work in Kansas, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado. Um, with that same group, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's NRCS on the lesser prairie chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do some work in, oh, out on the East Coast, um, Eastern United States, also in parts of uh, Minnesota and, uh, on some woodcock habitat. Um, and then a variety of our projects that maybe pheasants are the primary beneficiary uh, but the connected right to that are sharp-tailed grouse and greater prairie chickens, and we have all sorts of projects. Well, I guess you throw um, a Hungarian partridge in that mix too. We have all sorts of projects across the Dakotas, Montana, Minnesota, Wisconsin that benefit um, a variety of prairie grouse species. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that is maybe not really in, um, naturally intuitive is um, pollinators and monarch butterflies. 
um, what we term as um, brood habitat, you know, flowering plants, coneflower, blanket flower, milkweed that's mixed in with prairie grasses, that that kind of habitat is critical for when pheasants and quail chicks are born, you know, very, very early um, um, summertime. Well, that exact same habitat with those flowers is critical habitat for pollinators and monarch butterflies. Um, so it's it, it basically connects back to what we learned all as third graders, that the web of life. Everything is sort of inter, interconnected. And, mm-hmm. and we found in the last decade that uh, we can reach a lot of new audiences, um, agencies, partners, and, and landowners by connecting the dots between pheasants, quail, honeybees, and monarch butterflies. <laughs> that is very interesting. And yeah, you're right. I've never, I never connected those dots, but you're exactly right. And, yeah, uh, and and the magnitude of that importance. Um, if you think about what we eat as as humans, uh, one in three bites of food that you take needs pollination. And you've probably read the news reports about our honeybee populations across the country crashing because of neonicotinoids, uh, insecticides used on uh, a chemical used on, on some of our uh, vegetables and fruits. And and by our organization's ability to plant this pollinator habitat, we can we can um, you know help bring back some of those uh, those populations, mm-hmm. which ties back to healthier food and um, better quality of life for us as humans, not only for pheasants, quail, and pollinators. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you guys uh, get together at your pheasant fest in uh, every uh, – what time of year is that? Is that yeah, in February? So, or? so National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic is – is uh, kind of the Super Bowl of upland for upland game enthusiasts. Uh, uh, it occurs every February. Uh, we move it around the country. This past year, it was in Schaumburg, Illinois. Uh, the year before that was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, February 14th, 15th, 16th, 2020, it'll be in our. Uh, we'll, we'll be playing a home game, so to speak. We'll be in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, for a National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Excellent. That's great. I was uh, supposed to speak at when when it was in Omaha. The last year it was in Omaha, and uh, the weather was so bad I couldn't get there. So, um, and I have not been since. So, uh, it's just grown by leaps and bounds, uh, from what I hear. And uh, it seems like anybody that's anybody is going to be going to Pheasant Fest in the middle of February. So. Uh, yeah, just, it, it, just, it, it, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, just from a uh, standpoint of someone that uh, is not involved with your organization, I'm just letting you know that the word on the screen is that's the place to be. That's, <laughs> well, awesome. yeah. that's good. You know, when people <laughs> hear about it for the first time, you know, they automatically think, um, wow, that blaze orange and shotguns. And, and that's absolutely true. It's it's open to the public. It's going to have the latest and greatest shotguns and hunting clothing and hunting destinations. But it is, you know, we're a nonprofit conservation organization, so it taps into our mission 
uh, the minute you walk through those gates, you can see mm-hmm. that our our mission is creating habitat, and we have partners from, you know, like the Nebraska Game of Parks Commission or the Minnesota DNR, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. If you own property anywhere in the country, you can sit down at Pheasant Fest with one of our biologists and walk through different programs that you may be able to um, do to improve the habitat on your land for wildlife and and, and get paid for it at the same time. Yeah. So it's got that it's got the habitat component, it's got the hunting component, it's got the bird dog component, which you know it, it's awfully darn tough to hunt pheasants and quail without bird dogs, and it's the number one attraction of the show. We kick off the event with a, um, a parade of bird dogs. Last year we had over 50 different breeds of bird dogs and 140 participants. And then uh, every hour on the hour we have a, a dog training stage with Purina and sport dog e-collars. Um, everything from how to pick a puppy to training your bird dog to hunt antler sheds. Um, and then we have a wild game cooking stage uh, with the explosion of people wanting to, you know, not only eat what they what they chase, but to also make it taste delicious. Uh, mm-hmm. We have some of the the best wild game chefs from around the country do demonstrations every hour on the hour. So if it's if it's uh, pheasant feather jewelry to uh, you know a, a sling for your shotgun to finding a new puppy or Buying a new piece of artwork for your wall, um, or even buying a tractor uh, to plant habitat. Anything you can possibly connect the dots to um, to habitat conservation, bird hunting. It, it's on the floor at Pheasant Fest. Wow, wow. Well, this may be the year I got to get there. Yeah, come on up. You know, it, it sounds. Uh, um, it sounds cold coming to Minneapolis uh, yeah, in February, but it's uh, it's an absolutely great time with uh, thirty thousand of your um, like-minded friends. friends. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, it does sound cold, actually, but uh, but that's okay. That's okay. That's the place to be. Uh, bird hunter, bird hunters are hardy. Yeah, we're uh, when our season ends, you know, we would like to to check out those destinations. And like I said, there's, you know, if you've ever thought about um, checking out a different breed of bird dog, whether it's a small Munsterlander or a Spinoni Italiano or a Brachtu Bourbonese, uh, Deutsch Vuchtelhauen, you got to learn different languages to pronounce oh, yeah. these dogs. But, yeah. but they're, they are all on the floor at Pheasant Fest. Uh, best bird dog breeders in the country will be there. No, that's exciting. That really is. I, I think that would be. There's just so much to cover. Uh, I was talking to Scott Linden in an earlier pod, podcast, and he uh, he actually gave a guide, published a guide on how to see pheasant fest. You know, <laughs> he, he said, when you come in, don't go right or left. He said, 80% of the people turn to the right. So <laughs> if you're waiting in line, going all the way, he said, go straight to the back. Just go all the way to the back. As far as you can go, you can't go any farther, and then go left and right. Because you'll be all by yourself back there. You'll be able to see all the booths and talk to everybody you want. There won't be anybody around. And uh, so, you know, it's big enough to where people are actually give you guides as to how to see it. <laughs> Scott's cool. always breaking it down with a bird hunter's mind uh, of a game plan, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Walk into the wind so you smell the yeah. hot dogs the entire time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, always into the wind. Yeah. Well, now, so do you hunt? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So uh, if you're familiar with the term youper, oh, yeah. uh, I'm a youper, and so I grew up um, uh, chasing rough grouse in, in Woodcock in, in the UP. Came to Minnesota for college, stayed for my first job. I worked in um, minor league baseball for seven seasons, and then an opportunity opened up and at Pheasants Forever, and uh, I've been here going on 17 years now. So, yeah, I'm a um, passionate bird hunter. I hunt every single weekend of the season um, and spend my holidays chasing all sorts of things from, from quail to uh, rough grouse to pheasants to prairie mm. grouse. Um, all yeah. Generally, I uh, you'll find oh somewhere in the area of seven states hunting licenses in my wallet each year. Oh, I know. I know what you mean, and, 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 you know, it used to be, when I started doing all this stuff, the hunting license was just a hindrance. Oh, no, a hindrance, but I mean, it was just something like money-wise, it wasn't even deal. Mm-hmm. I pay 35 40 50 bucks. Now, I mean, it seems like all the states are raising their hunting fees. I'm, I'm paying well over $100 most of the time. And in some states, it's only for five or six days of hunting. Ten days of hunting in South Dakota. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think it is okay. I mean, it's generally, you know, um, that that's one of the smaller expenses. I think about the tank of, tank of gas, the hotel room. You know, um, yeah. you know that a hundred, even if it's a hundred and thirty dollar license in South Dakota, um, you know, considering the public land that that opens the doors to in some of these walk-in programs and you know in the diminishing number of hunters on the landscape um i'm 100 percent comfortable helping to contribute to those habitat and access acres through a license because there's you know if we want to uh to make sure these traditions and this opportunity continues and you know hunters still got to continue to lead the way with those dollars and the license generally is a smaller piece of that puzzle it is. It is. Uh, that one grew, and then the other thing I noticed, the other expense that I've run into is, of course, fuel costs. Hmm. I just didn't even used to think about them, but now they're a major expense. But, yeah, and that's just part of, if you're going to drive, you know, 2,000 miles to hunt birds, that's just what you're going to have to put up with. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about it. But anyway, yeah, I think I had 10 licenses last year. <laughs> and my wife, my wife said, uh, you know, a drawer full of them, you know. And in some states, like uh, I think in South Dakota, <clears throat> had to buy tool. Yep. And yeah, I went sure. back a couple of times. Started out, started out in the grasslands in uh, before pheasant season, and I went back uh, for uh, uh, sharp tails and and uh, pheasant later on in the year. And so that's just the way it works out. But but they do have a great program, no doubt. They do, and there's um, there's so many different public access programs in the, sta- in the state of South Dakota, in particular. It's um, yeah. it's a place that, uh, without question, I buy um, I buy at least one license in South Dakota every year, and that gives you those two sets of five days. And mm-hmm. many times, I find myself uh, recognizing that's not enough time in South Dakota, and I'll have to buy that second license because it is because you got to go chase sharp tails and prairie chickens early out there it's just it's such a beautiful walk and it's such a unique experience and then you got to oh, go yeah. back and hunt pheasants around the opener and then at, 
you know, pretty quickly you realize it's a great place to go chase late season roosters. So, yep. yeah, yep. most of the time, most of the time you're looking at two two licenses in South Dakota, and that's Absolutely. well worth it. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, of course Montana, they got, they're an entity into themselves, but you can get a yearly license there, which is which is good. So yeah, I had a terrific uh, trip to Montana last year where I. Hunted on horseback for uh, sharp tails and, and huns for my very first time on, on oh, horseback, wow. and it was uh, it was really really an interesting experience to watch to watch your dogs work um, at greater distances from you because you're covering so much ground and you know it's that sharp tail country so it's not like hunting a pheasant uh, you know a CRP yeah. field um, yeah. just beautiful beautiful landscape. Uh, really unique experience and a lot of fun yeah so you have dogs then yeah i got a pair of short hairs uh currently i've got uh, a five-year-old and a 12-year-old both short hairs and uh 12-year-old is uh is still holding their own thank god every day that uh she's she her health is good and she continues to hunt with me and Couple months away now from the start of the 2019 season, so fingers crossed she'll be be uh, in good shape to help me. But I do have uh, uh, my third pup set to um, set to be born here in a couple weeks uh, with a take home date around September 14th, which is uh, which is in the the. It's going to make the busiest time of the year even busier, but it's the breeding that I've been waiting for for a couple of years. So, mm-hmm. um, so we're going to add the third pup to the family here soon. Oh, that's great. Yeah. About five years difference is what I always try to get, but it doesn't work out all the time. But that seems to be an optimum. No, it doesn't. I, I had a, I had a pup in between that, uh, tragically passed away and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it doesn't always work out the way you stagger them. So when when the opportunity to add the bloodlines popped up, that I um, I just I couldn't pass it up. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, now you have a blog and a podcast of your own, do you not? Well, yeah, uh, we do a, a pheasants forever and quail forever podcast uh, called On the Wing. Uh, and we we produce we've been producing that since last fall. Um, uh, fall of 2018, I think we've got 30, 33, 34 um, episodes out there for folks to listen to. Uh-huh. Uh, I also do a, um, a radio show in the Twin Cities every Saturday morning um, with uh, with I'm a co-host to uh, the Captain Billy Hildebrand, a good friend of mine, hosts the show, and he's been doing it for almost 30 years, and I'm the uh, co-host on Saturday mornings, and that's called Fan Outdoors on on KFAN out of the Twin Cities, and you can get that. Oh, in, uh, you can pick that up uh, on a on the Fan Radio Network across part of South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and all over Minnesota, and it's mm-hmm. online at uh, KFAN.com. Um, on the Wing podcast, you can find at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. And then, uh, yeah, I do a little writing as well, and you can find that on Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's website as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, I noticed I had one other thing I wanted to mention, and uh, and that was that I noticed when I hunt Merns Quail down there, one of their local chapters has puts on a Quail Forever 
uh, quail festival down in Sonoya on December 8th on the opening weekend of Murn season. And uh, you said that you were thinking about uh, hunting Murn's quail this year down there at, uh, in that area. So, yeah, I uh I I purchased uh, a live auction hunt with a buddy of mine at last year's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Um so I I am locked and loaded. I'll be hunting uh that Patagonia area uh I think it's the second or third week of January. It'll be my first opportunity on Mern's Quail. I've I've chased a variety of other species but to this date not Mern's. So Hopefully, God willing, I'll I'll be able to check that one off our, off my list. Yeah, it's been uh, you know I've been down there in years when uh, ten fifteen cubbies a day was routine, and then for the last two years it's been kind of it's been kind of sparse down there. So hopefully they'll make a good comeback. Uh, they're getting a lot of rain, and uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, they don't even pair up until much later in the year. You know, they don't even pair up, I don't think, until June or July. Hmm. Uh, they're a late, late pairing of bird. But anyway, you'll learn more about them. But what a wonderful bird that is. What a wonderful habitat. And I used to think chucker hunters were clickish. You haven't seen clickish yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, hunters, I... <laughs> hunters would rather sell their bird dogs and tell you where they're going to go. <laughs> it's kind of like morel mushroom hunters. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I've still yet to find my first morel that I keep looking. But, but yeah, <laughs> I think I got I got kind of voted on the island among this group of guys that's been going down there for 35 years. And most of them live in the area. And I don't know how it happened, but I, I ended up being welcomed into their group. And uh, they made it. They made it perfectly clear to me in no, in no uncertain terms that I will not tell anybody where we go. <laughs> well, I <will> <laughs> well, I might have to bar- barter uh, a morel mushroom spot for a Mern's quail spot for you off air. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Bob. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot about uh about the organization, about what you guys do, which I didn't really realize it was, it was all that. I totally yeah, did. yeah, uh, yeah. Our slogan is the Habitat Organization. So if you're an upland bird hunter out there, no matter what you chase, if it's got feathers, we're we're definitely helping it. And uh, I guess I'd encourage folks to to go on our websites, uh, pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. We we definitely need your membership, uh, and in, I'd invite you to join and. Get involved in habitat conservation. I appreciate you having me on the show, Randy. Thanks a lot, Bob. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Very good. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Welcome to A Bird Hunter's Thoughts, Turn Them Loose, a podcast about all things bird dogs and bird hunting. If you get a chance, go ahead and like and subscribe and share this program. Send it to a friend. Well, let's go ahead and get to today's program. Well, I actually took my ESP, Electronic Shooters Protection Form Fit Custom Attenuators, to a field trial this last month. Uh, It was one of the major trials in Nastra in Osceola, Iowa. And while 
I didn't win it. In fact, I only made one cut. <laughs> we gave it a good try, and I got plenty of shooting. One thing I noticed is when I put these in, I, within minutes, forgot I even had them in. They were so comfortable. And uh, when I started shooting, that's when I noticed it made it a lot nicer out on the field. Um, lately, I had been actually feeling it in my ears when somebody shot around me and it it, uh, it, it kind of hurt so I was losing all my hearing in the right side and a lot of my hearing in the left side and that was verified by the doctor's testing and uh, I sent those results into ESP America and they sent me back some custom hearing attenuators and they are they are wonderful uh, ESPamerica.com. Why don't you go ahead and uh, tune up their website and, and see what they can do for you. Thanks.